Back in uh, February, I was uh, uh, asked to volunteer, you might say. I didn't raise my hand right away, but uh, a good friend of mine in ministry had breakfast with me. He paid, so I knew something was up. And, um, and, and he said, Jim, we're friends, and I want to ask a big favor of you. Uh, and I said, go ahead, but I was holding on to my wallet the whole time. And, and he says, I would like you to go to Nepal with me to teach the Gospel of John at a pastor's conference. And I was thinking, this decade? Um, and, 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 I, and I looked him in the eye, man, I'm sorry I did this. And I said, there's two reasons why I shouldn't go. And I just listed them, because they came immediately to me. I said, the first reason is, We've been really pushing to get into this building, and that will be in a, you know about six months. And there are so many uh, tired but blessed people, and I'm one of them. And I'm not sure it's the right thing for me to do in terms of timing because it was in early November. The second thing I said, look at me. I, I'm old, and I'm not getting any younger. And Nepal is not on my bucket list. <laughs> Uh, more than that, I said, I have a series of five mission works that I want to spend the rest of my life encouraging. I have never believed that at this stage of my life, I'm starting new ones. I said, I got Australia and Spain and Romania and France and, and Juarez, Mexico. Uh, these are the things where I want to go back and, you know, and, and encourage. These are lifelong relationships, and I can only absorb so many of those. So um, he said, well, pray about it. And, of course, I said, oh, yes, I'll, I'll pray because that's what pastors do. And, and so I went home and I you know, began to talk to people, to Barb and to others about it. And, and it dawned on me that, you know, many, many years ago, I had promised God that when an offer was made to go somewhere in the world, I should take it seriously. And more than that, I was aware of the several times in which an offer was made, and I said, I'll pray about it, which means, I don't think so. And each of those times, I ended up going, and my life is different. It's changed. I mean, it has done so much to me, and therefore helpful to you for you to get rid of me for periods of time and to be overseas. So um, I... I, I I began to pray about it. Just about everybody said, this is a great opportunity. So I prayed even harder to think of why I shouldn't. And and um, and for some reason, now you're about to understand what a crazy mind I have. For some reason, as I was praying, into my mind came Sarah Palin. The, you know, <laughs> she ran for vice president with McCain, John McCain. You go, Jim, you are in trouble. Um, but... But I, the reason that she came to mind was uh, I cannot forget about two things that she has said. Now, this is not about politics, whether you're Republican or Democrat, but it's about two things that she said that I cannot forget. The first was, as she stood before a crowd accepting, she goes, what's the difference between a, put, a pit bull and a hockey mom? And she pulls out this little canister and says, lipstick. And I, you know, I was telling that and laughing about that and can still can't forget that. That is one of the better jokes uh, that a woman can tell about a woman uh, that I will remember for the rest of my life. But the second was this. 
She was in this interview with uh, Charles, uh, who was it? Um, no, Charles Gibson. And um, she was in this initial interview, and Charles Gibson had a very condescending tone to her at, at, at a certain uh, part of it. And I was getting really upset that he, he had not been condescending in any of his other interviews. So as I was watching this, uh, Sarah continued to speak and answer all of his questions. But what he was getting at is, what makes you think you're second, you, that you're worthy of being second in line to run this great country? And it wasn't so much she being a woman, but being experienced. And from that, you get the line, I can see Alaska from my backyard. Um, but Thank you. Um, this could be a long morning. May I please ask that you not interrupt me again? Okay. Uh, this, this, uh, I can see Russia from my backyard. Of course, she was in Alaska, not Russia. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, she gives an answer like this. You know, why she accepted to be the vice presidential candidate for the Republican Party. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing except for the last three words. When you're offered such an honor, you don't blink. That was a great line. You don't blink. You answer immediately. She goes, you know, I can't say no to this. Well, understand that I spend a lot of my life blinking. I spend a lot of my life saying, oh, you know, I'm measuring it one way against the other. You know, as I do a cost and, and time analysis, this would seem to be the best way. But then you have to add this. And I spend a lot of my life blinking. And I find out that when I stop blinking and really get to, is this what God wants? The decision becomes very easy. So this is not about Sarah Palin. This is about how if I kept blinking, I would have missed some of the greatest moments of God directing my life. And this is about how you respond to God when you sense that he is prompting you in some form to serve him, to be in his work. This is about intentions, divine and otherwise. And we're reading the, uh, the account of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. And we understand that he's had a long season of disappointments, of really bad luck, you might say, if you're looking at it from a human point of view. And, 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 and so uh, he suddenly wakes up in prison because here's been the last 13 years of his life. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. Little family counseling needed there. Uh, then he was a, a servant in, in, in an official's household, and he didn't please the servant's wife the way she wanted to be pleased. So therefore, uh, he finds himself in prison. And suddenly, after uh, interpreting dreams for two of the uh, Pharaoh's servants, after interpreting those correctly, two years after he interprets those, he finds himself leaving prison and going into Pharaoh's palace. And uh, uh, he, 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 he's confronted with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh basically says, I hear you can interpret dreams. Interpret these, please. And suddenly what's involved here is Joseph's gifts and God's honor. What do I mean by that? Well, Joseph immediately answers, I can't do it. He replies to Pharaoh, which could have been the end of his life. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So with great boldness, Joseph gives credit 
of these dreams to the one who gave the dreams and the one who can interpret them, God. He says with confidence that God will give the answer because God gives you the dreams. And as we said last week, one of God's intentions for this incident to occur is that Joseph can brag on God in front of Pharaoh and he uses God's name five times. Now, this is a foreign term to Egypt. It, it, you know, this, this term that the, uh, the Hebrew, just this one Hebrew family was using had maybe been used a little bit, but it was very foreign even there. You, you have to understand what good idolatry is like, what good polytheism is like. It, it's, it, it's saying, I'm going to bet on this. I'm going to put all my money on this stock in your 401k. But just in case, I'm going to put a little bit aside on this stock. That way, if this one doesn't turn out as they promised, I've got this one. And good polytheism means you spread your bets out. You do your over-under. You get very suspicious and you want to make sure that you'll get your way. So if you don't get all of your way, you'll get some of it. And this is what Egypt was like. Egypt uh, loved its idolatry. And when Joseph speaks up here... Joseph says, I am talking to you about the God of gods. His name is Elohim. Egypt has many gods. It has a sun god, a river god for the Nile only, uh, the god of the underworld, the mother god, and you can go on and on and on. Egyptians had more gods than you have pairs of socks in your drawer. Why? Because they were hedging their bets. Polytheism is a form of superstition. So he mentions Elohim, five times, foreign to the Egyptians. They had never really thought much about Elohim. How could there be only one God when we want to have several just in case things go bad? Elohim is the God above all gods. Its name in Hebrew really essentially means uh, there are many gods, but he's the greatest one. Elohim is the creator of the universe. It's why matter exists. Elohim is the one who not only made it from nothing, but the one who who causes it to to be sustained. And it continues. Elohim is the one that every other false god has to bow down to. Elohim is the one. And so Joseph uses the name Elohim, and then he shows the power of this god by deciphering the dreams of Pharaoh. Pharaoh keeps hearing Joseph brag on this God. And he hears five times, Elohim, 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 Elohim. Now, he brings up the two dreams. The first yeah, first dream is about seven fat cows. It's sort of like the Chick-fil-A cows, you know. Eat more chicken. They're really big, really big and healthy. Uh, just bad spellers. So um, he, he, there's seven fat cows. And yet... And these fat cows are in the Nile, and yet seven lean cows come, and, um, and and they swallow or they eat up the fat cows, and it looks like they haven't eaten a thing. I don't know about you, but I can be thinking one thing: infomercial. How do we look like those cows and eat all we want? But it goes beyond that because there's a second dream. And the second dream is about a a very healthy stock of grain that has seven heads on it, meaning it's very, very fruitful. Several Seven being the perfect number. 
But then on that same stalk, seven dry heads of grain emerge, and, and, and they've been influenced by a, a lack of water and a, and a, and a burning wind uh, out of the east. And so these come, and they swallow up the seven good ones. So in Joseph's experience, he seems to deal with dreams in pairs. He has two at home where he says, Brothers, you're going to be bowing down to me. Parents, you're going to be bowing down to me. And he shares those, and for that he gets sold as a slave. Then he's in prison, and he has the butler and the baker share each of their dreams, two more dreams. And so now it comes to um, to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has these two dreams, and this is the way it seems to happen to Joseph. But there's something important about two dreams. There's something important saying... Pharaoh, you just didn't have a bad night. You just didn't eat bad pork last night. That's not the issue of what's going on. You didn't have raw catfish. Instead, the fact that you've had two dreams means this really is God speaking. Now, I realize that may not happen to you, but what he's trying to say is that the fact you've had two dreams... Uh, understand that God is in this. And so he says, the two dreams are very easy to understand. Uh, understand that you're going to have seven years of great harvest. And, and you're going to be harvesting and, 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 and having uh, uh, an agricultural boom, you might say. It'll be more than you could possibly need. There'll be a season of abundance for food for the entire country. But then it'll be followed by seven years of famine so severe that the abundance will be wiped out. The surplus will be like it never existed. So in the midst of all this, we do not know why these dreams came. Well, by why? Usually when we think of bad things coming, the first thing that comes to our mind is, oh boy, what did I do wrong? Right? Because God is out to punish me. The last thing we think is, oh, this is given to me to save me. When we hear of bad things coming, we look at God and we think like so many other people do. uh, What have I done that I need to repent of? What have I done that I need to ask forgiveness for? But we're never told why. God knows what is coming. But he's not saying that he's the one causing it for some sort of sin of Egypt. Now, if God wanted to punish us for our sins, believe me. There'd be plenty. I'd be toast. But he focuses on the what, not the why. And so Joseph then says the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do in verse 25. And now we believe that the Pharaoh this time was Sesostris III, not to be mixed up with Sesostris IV or the second, okay? And, and, um, and that one of these, this Pharaoh's grandfather had... Uh, been able to channel out of the um, out of the Nile a, a low point, um, so that the when the Nile overflows, it would go into this big reservoir, sort of like an early Aswan Dam. Um, uh, and so they had taken great care to make sure that the Nile would continue to deliver as needed for the whole Egyptian nation. Well, we have also found in all of our search that there is no record of seven years of famine. No record at any time that they went through seven years of famine. Now, that might be, see, it worked. Or it might also be that 
whenever the Egyptians came up against somebody that they didn't really like, they just erased them from history. There's no Moses. In anywhere you'll see in Egypt, there's nothing about Joseph anywhere in Egypt. It's like they didn't occur. By the way, there's nothing about King Tut. We wouldn't have found his tomb. We wouldn't have known he existed. So they just had this way of just erasing all memory. There's nothing in the hieroglyphics, nothing in the record books, anything like that. Now imagine, if you will, that uh, we can have a bad year on the Nile and get through it. Or we can have two or three bad years like California is, is doing with its drought right now. And it's not because they're Californians. Okay, God's not. Okay. But, but seven years for the Nile would be the end of the civilization. There would be riots. There would be an overthrow. There would be chaos. There would be mass death. So even though we don't know why, we are grateful that God foresees and reveals what's about to happen. You see, the, the only miracle in the whole account of Joseph is that he can interpret the dreams. Everything else sort of occurs on a human basis as if God's not in it at all. So... <clears throat> He says again in verses 32 and 33, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Wow. So he says once more, okay, understand, this is, this is God. He's mentioning God's uh, Elohim two more times. God's name and, and God will do it soon. And it's God who's behind this. This is happening because God is doing it. This is his work. And then Joseph adds one more thought. And this is where I would blink. But Joseph doesn't blink, okay? I I love this. So without being asked, he says, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. He wasn't asked that question. Pharaoh doesn't say, "What, what should we do? He's Joseph. He's got a big mouth. Great confidence. He's wonderful. He's a pain in the neck, too. Especially if he's your brother. But he adds that at the very end. And basically, what is he saying? He's saying, Pharaoh, you need a plan. Find the right man to prepare for this. Find the man who can use the good years to prepare for the bad ones. Because God has arranged it in such a way that you will have good years before the bad, not bad years before the good. And so in today's term, he says, make all of Egypt open up an IRA. Only an agricultural one. So you're going to be saving, you know, the surplus and, and be able to use it later on. So this is all about God's honor, and God's honor is involved in Joseph's plan. So Pharaoh then asks, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom this, it resides the Spirit of God? And so uh, Pharaoh is there in the palace with all of the, all of the advisors who, who cannot interpret the dream. They all listen to uh, Joseph uh, give the interpretation for the dream. And, and Joseph says, well, find somebody. Here are all your leaders. I think that's what he's thinking. Here are all your leaders. Find one of them. And I imagine when the interpretation was given, some of the you know, um, Egyptian wise men and magicians and stuff were thinking, who is this Hebrew telling us how to run our country? I mean, he was just a slave and a, and, a, and a convict just a few hours ago. But I think there were a few others who were saying, oh, oh, Pharaoh, choose me, choose me. I'd love to do this. And Pharaoh, 
however, looks at Joseph. And in a real way, he submits to the God of Joseph, Elohim. Can we find anyone else like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God, Elohim? The way that this was inspired by Moses to write this down. Five times, Joseph says Elohim. It gets Pharaoh's attention, and finally Pharaoh says Elohim. And then he says it again. There's a point here, isn't it? You honor God enough in your life and it's visible. And others begin to honor the God that you honor. And some of you might say, I tried that once and I got thrown out of the club. I, I get that. Okay. But, but he says, no, you honor him with your life. You honor him with your gifts as Joseph is doing. You, you, you know, uh, there's no, you know, there's no uh, confirmation that this um, uh, plan came from the from the Lord, but Joseph just blurts it out, and and Pharaoh agrees. Not and says, not only do we need a man, we need the right man, one in whom the spirit of Elohim exists, because Elohim is the one who told us about this dream. And so he then he says it again. Since God has made this known to you, Joseph, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. Who made this known to you, Elohim? The best one in the palace to take us through what God has revealed is the one who already reveres Elohim. Never before had Pharaoh used the name of God, the God of Joseph. Now he uses it twice and he appoints Elohim's man to save Egypt from the coming famine. Wow. You know, this is one of those great turnaround stories, isn't it? And we're looking at it a human, on a human uh, view. I mean, it's like Jean Valjean and Les Miserables, right? I'm a prisoner, I get released, I should be in jail again, and this time executed, but no, there's a, a moment of grace in my life. And But, okay, for all of us who haven't seen or read Les Miserables in the original French language, um, how about Rocky? Is there a better turnaround story than Rocky? A lazy, no-good, washed-out bum fighter who gets one chance. And from that, we get Rocky 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. <laughs> you see, we love to look at these turnaround stories thinking it's all human. He just dedicates himself and all goes well, and he's just a lucky duck. But this is not about Joseph. It's about Elohim. The God of Joseph and our God is not that simple. There are godly intentions behind the human intentions. God is working where men do not see him working. So Pharaoh is introduced to a foreign god not known and worshipped in Egypt. And he reveres him, at least for the moment. And the leader of Egypt, who himself is considered a deity, understands that what God is doing here, first of all, he's introducing Pharaoh himself to God. So that Pharaoh is using Joseph's God's name. Wow. And also he's doing one other thing, and that's humbling him. Pharaoh, if you do this on your own, it's going to be a washout. You'll be um, 
you, you won't be just thrown out. You'll be killed because you could not take care of the people. So he's introducing him, but he's also humbling him. And even Pharaoh is a man with limitations. And we all have to confess that when we're faced with things bigger than us and, and bigger than even our wildest dreams, we have uh, limitations. And so Pharaoh speaks God's name and he speaks it twice. And Pharaoh chooses God's person to save the nation. I want you to know, whether it looks like it in terms of the news or not, God humbles world leaders and God humbles great nations. God even humbles second-rate nations. Why? Because the nations choose not to worship God. God is humbling Iran. They don't know it. God is humbling Iraq. God is humbling China. God is humbling Germany. God is humbling and introducing himself to North Korea. God continues to do this with great nations and second-rate nations. Why? He wants to be known. It's his intention to be introduced and have those world leaders who believe they have so much power to be humbled before him. Did I say God is humbling the United States? He is. That's the only way he'll use us. That's the only way he'll use us. So people who do not know his name due to other religions will be introduced to this Elohim and be humbled by Joseph's God. Elohim. That's what it means to be sovereign. When we say our God is a sovereign God, that's exactly what we mean. The second thing about God's intentions is he wants us to know that even though we look at bad circumstances and we look at it in terms of superstition that we've done something wrong, bad circumstances plus God equals good. God is here giving 14-year projection. 14 years of what to look at in the future. And he's letting them know as a warning, seven good years will be beyond anything you've ever experienced in your lifetime. But the seven bad years will wipe it all out. It's a warning. It's a warning and only God could give this warning. Nobody else could foresee it. And so at the end of these 14 years... Uh, understand that if you do it right, if you honor me and, and, and you know, work out a plan, then you'll see that it's going to be just as I said, seven good years and seven bad years. But if instead Egypt had decided to party, just party in those seven years, if Egypt would have said, man, have we got agriculture down. We have raised the science we will we will be able to feed ourselves forever. If they had said that, then they would be totally unprepared for what was to come. But instead, very wisely, they don't say that. But if they would have said that, then when those seven bad years occur, what would happen? Well, they would probably go to the God of the Nile. You know, the God of the Nile and say, could you just flow a little bit more? We'll offer you more grain. We'll offer you more uh, sacrifices if you just flow a little bit more. Or they could have gone to the God of the sun, Ra. And they could have said, God of the sun is too hot. Could you just chill out a little bit? Or they could have gone to the God of the wind and say, stop blowing from the east. You see, every God that they had ever invented would let them down. But Elohim tells them seven good years followed by seven bad years. They have time. 
And all of Egypt will know that Elohim prepared them and no other God did. Bad circumstances plus God when you're obedient equals good. Bad circumstances plus God when you're obedient equals good. God is sovereign and God is good. Final thing that I see in terms of God's intention is that he wants to honor those who honor him. See, Egypt does not get a miracle. Egypt gets a man with a plan. No miracles here. And, and, and so what impresses Pharaoh about Joseph is that Joseph could interpret the dreams. That was supernatural. But more than that, he has a plan. So in the 13 years, 13 years that he's been sold, serving Potiphar, running a prison as a convict, not only was God with Joseph, but we read that Joseph continues to trust God to work things out. Joseph did not wake up that morning and say, Lord, make me prime minister of this entire nation by sunset. That was not on his mind. He said, Lord, help me save the greatest nation on earth, the greatest civilization from extinction. He wasn't praying that. He was probably just praying, Lord, help me to run this prison again today. But God honors the one who brings honor to him. And this time it was in the presence of Pharaoh. Do you believe this is how God works? Do you believe that God responds to those who honor him? See, you're you're getting behind the circumstances, behind the human level, and looking at the heavenly level. Does God honor those who honors him? Who honor him. Let me just leave you with an example that I think pretty much proves it. Um, In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's two events where God speaks from heaven about his son Jesus. The first is at his baptism. A dove falls. Jesus says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Second time is at the transfiguration when he's up on a mountain. And only the disciples can hear this. But once again, um, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Not Moses, not Elijah. Listen to him. There's another time that we tend to gloss over in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 12. In that moment, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. There's been a parade for him. You're the greatest. We're here to honor you and to worship you. And when the parade is over, um, some Gentiles want to see him. And it looks like there's never been a greater moment for Jesus to be honored on this earth. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what shall I pray? What shall I pray? Knowing what's about to happen, with all of this honor, should I pray instead, Lord, take this away from me? Or should I pray instead, may you be glorified in this moment. And Jesus says, I'm going to pray that you'll be glorified. 
through what I'm about to do to go to the cross. And uh, the third time, a voice comes from heaven. John chapter 12, about verse 28. And that voice says, I have been glorified, and I will be glorified. I have been glorified, and I will be glorified again. In other words, what Jesus was about to do is something that nobody would, you know, I'd blink. But what Jesus was about to do, he said, I won't blink. I will do exactly what I know is coming. I, you know, I don't see the future that well, but, but Jesus did. And so as we come to communion this morning, we have to understand that Joseph is in, you know, has some similarities to what Jesus would have, so does Moses, so does Daniel, so does, uh, so does David. I mean, these are great men of God who take these opportunities, but they hold nothing in terms of greatness to Jesus. At that moment, Jesus didn't blink. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. First of all, we're going to take communion. And I, uh, this could be reported wrong. When you're offered an opportunity by God, don't pray too much. Don't, don't go, did you hear what Jim said? I don't want to see that in the local newspaper. Jim said don't pray too much. <laughs> when you're offered an opportunity by God, don't blink. By praying too much, Jesus didn't blink. Father, I personally believe that God has in store for each one of us opportunities to blurt out your name and bring honor to you. I believe this because I see it all throughout Scripture. I believe this because I see it in Jesus. I believe it not because a statement was made by a candidate for vice president. Because it's proven, been proven from the time that Joseph uttered this 4,000 years ago and ongoing till now. Lord, I believe that you are going to provide for us opportunities to bring honor to you by using your name by telling others how good you are, by sharing some of the experiences, even the bad ones, and how we sense you've been with us in them. I firmly believe that because I read it almost every day as I read your word. I firmly also believe that it comes with cost. Human cost. But Lord, you honor those who honor you. You honor those who honor you. We'll let you be in charge, Lord, of how you want to honor us. But would you reveal to us daily how we can honor you? And we'll ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.